Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, but I want to invite you to join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Last week, we kicked off our new sermon series with what I consider to be one of the great books of the Bible, one that has ministered to me as much as any, especially in recent years. In fact, in my own experience and just in talking to other people about this, I think that Ecclesiastes seems to, more, to, to mean more to people as they get older and older. We, we tend to look at life differently the older we get. We tend to process things differently the older that we get. When you're 15, 17, 20, 23 years old, you think that you are immortal and that you're going to live forever. And you you don't often consider long-term questions or things of that nature. But as you get older, things change. That certainly has been the case for me. But Ecclesiastes helps us to think through some of these things to see what God would say to us, especially in these important days in which we live as a church as we wait for Christ to return again. I don't want to just quickly move on from that because the Bible teaches and I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. And we, as his people, should be preparing ourselves and anticipating that day when he will come in power and great glory and take us to live with him for all of eternity. And so we say, let it happen, let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, as a dad and as a father, as a husband, I like it when our family can spend time together. And these days, that seems to be especially challenging uh, to, to accomplish because somebody always seems to be, ha- to be going in some other direction. It seems to have something going on all the time, whether it be band or ballet or bowling, gymnastics or a football game or uh, some kind of school project. But when we, we can, we get together, and what a great joy it is for us to spend time as a family. And maybe it's just raking leaves or picking apples or eating together, but it's just something about being together as a family that's really been special to me. And I know that these opportunities aren't always going to be here. Well, one of the things that uh, we like to do as a family is we like to play board games together. We play things like Settlers of Catan and uh, Ticket to Ride and Monopoly and Life. And there's a, a board game that we will occasionally get out. It's that old classic board game, Trivial Pursuit. And you remember this game, right? Trivial Pursuit. When I was growing up, I had some friends who they would just go and look at all of the cards and tried to memorize the answers to all the cards in there. And and I never really liked playing with them because that, that took all the fun out of the game, right? But the object of this game is to answer these uh, questions, to try to get the correct answer to these random questions that are kind of disconnected from each other. Questions like, well, who was the first woman to uh, pilot, uh, to be a pilot and fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean? Some of you know the answer to that. It was Amelia Earhart. Or what about this one? Who was the first dictionary written by? A guy by the name of Robert Caudry. Oh, this fun question that I like. Uh, which country consumes the most chocolate per capita? That would be Switzerland. Well, Trivia Pursuit can be a fun game. It, it's nice, friendly competition. 
But basically, all of the information that you gain from these questions has no real usefulness whatsoever. In fact, this has been described as a board game that tests players' grasp of wickedly inconsequential trivia. Wickedly inconsequential trivia. Well, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes here this morning. It is a raw and honest look at life. And here is the preacher. He's laying out his heart, and he describes to us what life is like in this world, what life is like in the here and now, or as he says it, life under the sun, what it's like. We've identified this preacher, this teacher, as Solomon, the son of King David, One of the things that was obvious early on in this book is that Solomon is this aging king who rules over Israel. He ruled nearly for for nearly 40 years. He's come to believe that apart from the Lord, nothing is in life is uh, everything in life is just passing away, that it's uh, uh, trivial pursuits that have no rhyme or reason, no real purpose. If you were here with us last week, you might remember that uh, we began the book by reading there in chapter 1 and verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that Solomon says that life is vanity. That word means a mist, a vapor. It is smoke. It is very shortly lived. It's here one moment, gone the next. It is elusive. It it just kind of slips through your fingers. That's what life is like. It can be like. But the good thing is, is that Solomon doesn't give up his search for meaning, his search for purpose, his search for life and the purpose, uh, the the, uh, proper understanding of life. And he continues to ask these questions. He continues to answer many of them throughout these 12 chapters of this book. He focuses here on four specific areas in this section that we're going to be looking at beginning today. Four specific areas where he personally invested a lot of time and a lot of effort. And these four specific areas are where most people in this world would say that meaning and purpose can be found. That if you want to have meaning, if you want to have purpose in life, these are the four areas that you can find it in. What Solomon does is he searches for meaning, he searches for purpose in these four areas. But in the end, he discovers that it is all just trivial pursuits. That they're just a vapor, that they're just a mist. We're going to look at two of these areas here this morning, and then the next next week we're going to come back and we're going to finish up this particular part of the message and, and look at the last two trivial pursuits, things that will let you down if you make them the most important part of your life's journey. So the, the first area, though, that, that Solomon isolates here is this pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom. Instead of wisdom, we might say educated wisdom, or we might say educated knowledge. But I think that when Solomon talks about the pursuit of wisdom, he's not talking so much about the kind of wisdom that's godly wisdom, but he's talking about worldly wisdom more than anything else. Things that you learn from going to school or from just researching on your own or just from reading. I want you to look at what he says there, beginning in verse 12. It says this, 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, let me stop there for just a couple of minutes because there's one, it's one thing that this is one thing that most people associate with Solomon more than anything else. If there's one thing from a biblical perspective that Solomon is known for, what would that be? Well, he's known for wisdom, right? Solomon wanted that. In fact, uh, we see this maturity early on in his reign as king. Close to 40 years before he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon asked God, not for money, not for power, not for fame, but for wisdom. And here is how God answers that request in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Behold, now do do accord now Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you have been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Later on in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 23, we're told that thus King Solomon excelled all of the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And so here is the thing about King Solomon. He We might call him today a renaissance man. He's a man of the world. He had an inquiring mind and he had spent all of his life seeking out knowledge, seeking out wisdom. In fact, he was one of the most well-educated men in the entire world and was certainly the most educated man in all of Israel. And yet, did you notice what he says here? That the more wisdom and knowledge that he acquired, the more empty he felt. It didn't satisfy the deepest longings of his heart, the deepest need of his life. In fact, he calls this uh, vigorous pursuit after wisdom uh, that so many people are driven after. Solomon calls it an unhappy business. And, and, And let me say that here, the Hebrew word that's translated unhappy in verse 12 is a whole lot stronger than when you read it in the original language. It's not just an unhappy emotion, but most of the time when this word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to describe something malicious, something bad, something even evil. And that's the point that Solomon's trying to make here. The more that he learned, the more confused he became, the more confused he became, the more burdened he became about life. Which is what he says there in verse fourteen or verse eighteen. Verse eighteen, he says this: 
For in much wisdom is much vexation, much confusion. You might remember late in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is standing in front of the Roman governor and this governor says uh, to Paul, he looks at Paul and he says, hey, you know, I believe that all of the great learning that you have gone through has driven you what? It has driven you mad. It has driven you into insanity. That's what Solomon is saying here. For in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In fact, it's a bad business that Solomon calls a striving after the wind, which is an important phrase here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This book has other important words like vanity or that phrase under the sun, but this phrase striving after the wind, it pops up several places Throughout the book, the, the, this book, throughout these 12 chapters, the NIV uses this phrase. It calls it chasing after the wind. But what I'd like you to kind of imagine for a moment is this kind of picture that, that Solomon's painting here. And we have a silly cartoon picture that we're going to put up on the screen here of this. But can you just imagine seeing someone running around out in the field, literally trying to chase after the wind and trying to corral it, trying to bring it in? I mean, if you drove by an open field and you saw someone just out there trying to chase after the wind, trying to grab it, you'd say, wow, I mean, what what is that guy going to do? I mean, has he lost his mind? He's trying to do something that you can't do. It's impossible. Sometimes in leadership, you'll hear someone say something like this. Trying to lead these people is like trying to herd cats. Now, I would bet that most of you have never tried to herd cats before, but I grew up on a farm. And we had a bunch of cats around our farm. And you try to get a bunch of cats in the same place at the same time. It's almost impossible. But, but what's even more difficult? is trying to rein in the wind, trying to capture the wind. When it comes to trying to find purpose and meaning in life, if you try to do it through gaining more wisdom, gaining more knowledge, just having more of these intellectual pursuits, you're going to find that it is a trivial pursuit. It is like chasing after the wind. Now, having said all of that, let me just say this morning as well that... Uh, you, you ought to try to get as much knowledge as you can in life. You ought to try to get as much education as you can in life. I, I think that knowledge and education are worthy things to pursue after. But as Solomon says here, if knowledge and wisdom of this world is all that you've got, then you're not going to get very far. You need a knowledge and an understanding of who God is, of who you are, of why you're here, of what you're supposed to be doing, of what's going to happen after the short time that you have in this life. You're you're not going to get very far if all you have is knowledge and wisdom that is found here in this world. Today, your laptop, your personal computer... There is more knowledge than what used to be in all of the libraries in all of the countries in all of the world put together. And that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Yet, how much good does all of that knowledge, how much much good does all of that information do? 
There is still millions of people throughout this world who are illiterate. There are still millions of people throughout this world who are starving. Millions of people who are battling disease. There are tyrannical leaders and governments. People who are totally unhappy in life. And even though they have a lot of wealth and a lot of knowledge, there is still this unhappiness. Again, the Bible says there in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here's the point. Apart from the knowledge of God, the only thing that an educated man or woman can do is to die an educated failure. That's Solomon's point. If you acquire all the knowledge of this world, all the skill sets of this world, if you are trained in the greatest academies, schooled by the greatest teachers, you will still fail to experience meaning and purpose in life apart from a relationship with the Creator God. Because all of the knowledge and all of the wisdom in the world cannot change the human heart. In fact, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except Through me. This is why in the grand scheme of things, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge is a trivial pursuit. This is also why the Lord would say this in Jeremiah chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the, the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we're talking about trivial pursuits that won't help, help you find ultimate meaning and purpose in life. And, and the first one that Solomon mentions here is wisdom. And it's rather surprising because that's what he asked for at the very beginning of his reign as king. But what he's saying is that wisdom by itself is not enough for you to gain what you need in life more than anything else. But Solomon doesn't stop with wisdom. He mentions a second trivial pursuit here, and that's the pursuit of pleasure, which in our world today characterizes most everyone, right? That that everyone wants a life full of pleasure. We want to be able to work less and have more free time so that we can pursue after entertainment and pleasure. Remember the Mountain Dew commercial from several years ago, Do the Do. And there was this whole thing about this guy. He looked like a really fun-loving guy. And he was just having a great time in life going to all of these crazy places, doing all of these crazy things. Or maybe you see people on Instagram or Facebook or social media and they're posting these videos about themselves and they're skydiving or they're uh, bungee jumping off of a tall bridge or they're jumping off of this tall cliff into the water that's down below and you think, wow, I mean, there's no way that I could ever do anything like that. At least uh, not now I can't do anything like that. You know, when I was younger, maybe I could, but definitely not now. These people are thrill seekers, people who are looking to do something that they've never done before. And I imagine that Solomon had probably tried some of these things as well because he could afford to. But he wants us to know that you can have every experience in life, every thrill, every wild ride imaginable, but it's not going to answer the deepest questions of life. When you come to the end of it all, 
You you may be a person who has a number of very thrilling experiences in life, but if that's all you have, then you're going to end up being very empty in life because you'll be missing the whole point. This is what Solomon says as we make our way into chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was a vanity, a vapor, a smoke. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is this? Is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I mean, this could have been written by somebody in our culture today, right? Because this is how a lot of people live. This is what a lot of people live for. And Solomon even admitted that at one time in his life, that's what he lived for. But now he's an older man. He's looking back at how quickly life is passing by. He looks back on all of the pleasures that he had pursued after. And he says to himself, well, what was that all about? I mean, have you ever said that before? You, you had a great time, but now it's all over, and it kind of feels like a bit of a letdown. And you say to yourself, what was that? Many of you will feel this way after your next vacation that you take. I call it post-traumatic vacation blues. And, you know, the best times of vacation are like the two or three days leading up to it when there's all of this anticipation, like, you know what, I'm going to be free and I'm going to go hiking and I'm going to go to these historical sites and maybe I'll go lay out on the beach and read a book or something like that, whatever it might be for you. You look forward to this vacation and you you drive or you fly to wherever it is that you're going and and then you uh, get there and you are running around doing all of these things and You're doing so much, you come home at night, you collapse in your bed, and it goes by so fast, it's nothing but a puff of smoke here and then gone. Monday morning comes around, and it feels like such a letdown, and in your mind, you're asking yourself, well, what was that? I mean, it just flew by so fast. And that's why you can't make pleasure the end goal of your life, because it just doesn't satisfy. But the sad reality is, is that many people do. And what do we call that? We call that hedonism. The first thing that Solomon pursued after was intellectualism, but now he turns his attention to hedonism and the the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of personal experiences. And many in our culture and in our world today still do this. They, They think that happiness and fulfillment can be found in the things that we can touch and the things that we can taste, the things that we can hear and the things that we can sense or feel. And so we go, 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 and we try to do whatever we can. We try to get everything out of life that we can. And here's the thing. I'm not totally against that, and you shouldn't be either. You should like to take vacations. You should look forward to getting away. You should do exciting things in life. But just don't think that that is going to be the solution of knowing meaning and purpose in life. Or by doing these things that you're going to have happiness. Because... You're gonna end, it's going to all come to an end at some point. There's going to come a time where you'll have to come back to the real world again. As many of you know, I, I grew up in a small town. I, I grew up with a place that did not have places like Michigan Avenue or State Street downtown where you could go shopping. 
When I was really young, we didn't even have a Walmart. We didn't have a Target. We didn't have a dollar store or anything like that close by. And yet we had this place that was called Woolworths. Now, I imagine that there were probably some Woolworths around here too. Um, they were a really big deal though for us. We actually have a picture of a Woolworths building from the 80s, and what this store would have looked like. But it was the original five and dime store. Later on, it became so much more than that. But I remember what a big deal this was when my grandparents would take me as a young boy to go to Woolworths. Well, F.W. Woolworth was the guy who started Woolworths. He was the richest man around during his prime. When he died, he left a $50 million fortune to his granddaughter, Barbara Hutton, which was about a third of his estate. $50 million back then in the turn of the 20th century was a ton of money. Well, Barbara Hutton, uh, Woolworth's granddaughter, she inherited all of that when she turned 21 years old. And she started spending. She could not spend this money fast enough. Uh, this money was actually, the, the, it was so much money that it was making more money than she could spend. And so she went out and she bought yachts and she bought priceless works of art. And, and uh, she even had a private rail car outfitted by the owners of the Waldorf Historia Hotel. And the thing about Barbara Hutton is that she had all of this money. She had everything that money could buy, but it never brought her a moment of happiness. She was the most unhappy woman who ever lived. She got married seven times. She married a Vietnamese prince. She married a German count. She married an actor that some of you are familiar with named Cary Grant. And she married four other guys after them. And she battled alcoholism most of her life. Later on in life, she was a victim of anorexia, only weighed 80 pounds when she died at the age of 66 years old. And when she died, she only had $3,500 in her bank account. None of that stuff made a lasting difference in this woman's life. And that's what Solomon's trying to communicate here because he was in the same boat. He was born a prince. He had everything that you would ever want. He studied under the best tutors of his day. He had opportunities and experiences that most people could only dream about. He dabbled in all kinds of personal experiences. He had tons of fun in life. But most of that was just to mask all of the confusion that he was experiencing. Solomon lists several areas in chapter 2 that he pursued pleasure in. The first is sensuality. Sensuality. We all know about Solomon's wisdom, but we also know about his wives and his concubines. And what a terrible mistake that was. Plural marriage is a bad idea. It's not an idea that comes from God. He never uh, has uh, been promoting or trying to support Um, uh, plural marriage. But in in the first part of chapter 2 in verse 10, Solomon says this, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And so this could mean a number of different things, but it certainly included his love of women. Solomon is known as being a very wise man, but he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know what's wise about that, In fact, in the book of Proverbs, he basically shouts at his sons and he says, Hey, don't do what I did. 
Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27, he says this. Uh, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Verse verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense and uh, he who does it destroys himself. Solomon tried sensuality. It didn't work. He also tried amusement, but he found out that comedy and laughter, having a good time in life, that's only a temporary break from the tears that reflected the pain of his life. He says this in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Have you ever noticed how insecure people tend to mask their insecurities by trying to make jokes, by trying to get a laugh? I never, it never ceases to amaze me how many professional comedians are uh, personally unhappy and often downright depressed. One of the great examples of this, Robin Williams, who's arguably the funniest person who has ever been a part of the entertainment industry. He was a comic genius. Here's a guy who made it on the stage. Here's a guy who made it on late night television. He made it in the movies. I mean, he had everything that money could buy. It seemed that he had arrived professionally. He had arrived financially. He he failed to see any value in it. And at the age of 63, the funniest man alive checked out of life. I'm just saying that if you make the pursuit of pleasure the focus of your life, you will end up frustrated because that's a trivial pursuit. And in fact, Solomon says that the pursuit of laughter is madness, that it doesn't matter how much fun you, he, he was having. He still woke up the next day and, and, and he had to wake up to life in the real world. And all of that was just a mask. Now again, I'm all about laughter. I think that there are some people here this morning and probably some people on uh, line as well who are joining us Facebook Live who also need to laugh more in life than they do right now. I I think that we ought to have a good time, that life should be uh, viewed positively, optimistically, hopefully with a smile on your face and a skip in your step. And if anybody ought to be able to do that, it should be the people of God. I mean, we have more reason to laugh, more reason to be happy, more reason to be optimistic, hopeful, and upbeat than anyone else in the world. But unfortunately, many of us are walking around bitter, angry, mad at the world. And I just want to say, why? Are are we not believers Are we not the people who have been transformed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who's moved into our lives to give us a purpose and a hope? Friends, we ought to be joyful because we have a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. We ought to be hopeful. We ought to be optimistic. We ought to be, uh, we ought to laugh a lot. But, but that has to be tempered with the very real reality, particularly uh, uh, for people who are lost, that not all of life is a laughing matter. I mean, there's nothing more serious than how you're going to spend your life or how you cho- what you choose to pursue after or how you're going to spend eternity. 
That's why some of the greatest tragedies in life is when someone who has had a lot of fun dies apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the most tragic tragedy ever. All of us know people who laugh a lot, who have a good time, who seem to have it all, but, when, but, but, but they don't uh, know Jesus and they're, they're laughing themselves all the way to hell and, and that ought to break our hearts. That's why we reach out to our family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers because they're spiritually lost and they, they, they seem to ha- be having a good time but apart from Jesus Christ, there is no value in doing what it is that they're doing. Solomon looked for purpose and meaning in sensuality and in amusement. And then he tried alcohol. Alcohol. Verse 3. I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men under heaven or to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, this is a bit odd because Solomon cautioned against the abuse of alcohol in places like Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, where he says this, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. He he says, listen, I, I had to learn the hard way. I mean, just like in the, 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 with the issue of women, um, he had to come clean. And it's like he says, listen, I had to learn the hard way. I, I didn't always do this right. And this might be the most trivial pursuit of all because it leads to nowhere. All alcohol does is mask the pain. It never is going to make it completely go away. Well, <clears throat> what we see here is that Solomon did what a lot of people in life do. He searched for meaning in pleasure. And I think that that's the reason why so many people do this, is because life is short, and it's like they're kind of saying, you know what, I just need to grab life by the horns and ride it for all it's worth. But Solomon says, you know what, it's vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Now, we've got to quit here this morning, but... Let me do that by, first of all, reminding all of us that God is not trying to ruin your fun. He's not trying to take the joy out of your life. The Bible says that that God has created all things for your enjoyment, that, that he wants us to enjoy this life and he wants us to live life to its fullest. In fact, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. The point that Solomon is trying to make here is that you can only truly enjoy life if you have an understanding of who you are, who God is, where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going when you die. And friends... That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is in our Bible. It's not to discourage us or to depress us. It's not there to make us kind of sit around our home all day and just have these deep thoughts and never engage the world. No, what Ecclesiastes does remind us of is that real satisfaction can only be found in a knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ and living your life to please your heavenly Father, God. 
That, that, that's what it means uh, to, view, uh, to view and live life, not under the sun, but for the one who rules over the sun. One of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of St. Augustine, who lived during the 3rd and 4th centuries, he said this well, and I want to close with this quote that we're going to put up on the screen. Augustine said this, He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing at all. Let me say that again. He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing at all. And that's the point here this morning, that we need to engage in worthwhile and not trivial pursuits. Let's pray.